Father, we sung, breathe on me, breath of God. We continue to ask that you would breathe on us. Fill us with new life that we might love like you do. Live as you would want us to. Do the things that you do. So help us to listen to you, Lord, and to receive from you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Communion is one of those, I always think, uh, one of those uh, key moments. And it's a backwards-forwards looking time, isn't it, Communion? Where we both look back and see what God has done and look forward in the strength that he provides. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And uh, the passage I've chosen is in Matthew 18, verse 21. If you have an NIV or something similar, you'll see a subheading that says something along the lines of the parable of the unmerciful servant. You can deal with forgiveness in a whole range of different ways. There's lots of things the scripture says about forgiveness. But this is a parable that just brings out one particular emphasis here, and that's the one I want to bring this morning. So arising out of the paragraph or two before it, where Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Arising out of that, Peter's been chewing over that thought, thinking it through. So when Jesus gets to the end of what he's saying, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? <coughs> in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. 
There's a sting in the tail of that, isn't there? We rather like the thought of God forgiving us, but there's a strong sting in the tail. Jesus, having told this story of a man now languishing for the rest of his life in prison and being tortured, says that's how God will deal with you unless you forgive each other from the heart. And it's one of those verses that we wish wasn't there, don't we? We move on rapidly. Like the nice bits, don't like those bits. So what is a parable? Let me remind you what a parable is. A parable is not about information, giving us information that we can then tuck away in our brains and use at some other point. It is about getting us to see something from a different perspective. Whether the parable teaches one point or many is less important than to see that it's giving us a different perspective. Jesus wants to shift us round and say, now, look at it from this angle. Doesn't it look different? And that's what he's doing here with Peter. So the parable is about transformation, perspective. It's not about just information. How many times might I forgive my brother? Lots. There you are, got it. That's fine, isn't it? Solve that problem. No, that's not what the parable's about. You could summarise it like that, but it would miss the power of the parable. Forgiveness stands at the heart of all that God is doing. So when we talk about capturing something of the heart of God, forgiveness has got to be there. And the Lord's Prayer probably gives us an indication of what God thinks as the important foundational points on which life can exist, spiritual life can exist and it includes forgiveness forgiveness from God received and forgiveness to one another given so Peter and Jesus don't see things the same way not for the first time and part of growing up as Christians if I can put it that way is helping us to see, helping ourselves to see things in God's way so Peter's question arises out of his thinking through, he's got someone in mind probably He's probably got someone in mind thinking, oh, well, if that guy comes again, I've got to forgive him. I've got to go and see him forgive him. How many times have I got to go and forgive that guy? So he's probably got someone in his mind. And he's very generous. He says, up to seven times? That's pretty generous, isn't it? He does me in and I forgive him. And he does it again and I forgive him. And he does it again and I forgive him. We're all saying, what a lovely guy he is. I do that seven times, Lord, that's not bad. He's thinking of generosity, but he's thinking within limits. Jesus is thinking of generosity, but without any limits. So the parable is not to give Peter a definite answer, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. He's not giving Peter a number, so Peter can say, ticking it off, ticking it off, you're getting close to the end, tick it off. Whatever the number is, however big the number is, that's not what it's about. He wants to help him see the thing completely differently. The Lord's Prayer begins, after celebrating who God is, by asking that God's will be done and his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is constantly helping his disciples to see this is what the kingdom of God looks like and this is what I want you to live like. If this is what one day we shall be living like, start living like it now. That's the point. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So Jesus uses many parables to describe different aspects of God's kingdom. And let me remind you again, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same kingdom. There's not two kingdoms here. 
just that Matthew chooses to call it kingdom of heaven. And it will be countercultural. It won't be what we're used to. If it was, then what's the point of Jesus coming? The whole point is we're living lives that are not a match for God's kingdom. So we seek God's kingdom not merely because he tells us, but because it's the only safe way to live. The only sane way to live is God's kingdom. So this parable targets the issue of forgiveness at a deeper level than Peter is expecting. It's not only what we do, which is of course important, but it's the way we do it, the reason we do it, that is important too. You read 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins that chapter by showing that we can do outrageously extraordinary things. But if we do them without love, they are of no value whatsoever. So why we do what we do is important. Jesus doesn't just want Peter to forgive in a kind of reluctant way, in a numerical ticking off a list kind of way. He wants him to know why he's forgiving that his heart will be in it, not merely going through the motions, as it were. So, the parable. The first man owes the king a huge amount. I don't know what Bible you've got open in front of you, but you'll have a little footnote, I dare say, that says something like millions of pounds or a huge amount or whatever. The specifics are not important. The size of the debt is. And it is huge. It is unpayable. I'm going to repeat that a few times because it's very, very important we get that. If you don't get that, you don't get the parable. It's totally unpayable. This servant no way can pay this amount back. The amounts that Jesus uses are suggestive, I'm told, of the entire annual tax revenue raised in Judea, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee and Perea put together. It is colossal. It is vast. And it's impossible for the servant to pay it. He owes 10,000 talents. This talent, it would take him 20 years, 20 years to earn, not to save, but to earn one talent. So we're talking about him earning this amount of money in 200 thousand years. You got the idea? It is a massive debt. This is very important. You're probably thinking, oh for goodness sake Charles, move on. You're making the point. But if we don't get this because this servant doesn't get it. He doesn't get this bit. It's important we get it. There's no way, nothing this servant can do to repay the debt he owes the king. Ever. Whatever he thinks of. Whatever options he considers. He cannot do it. So it's pointless to speculate how he incurred such a debt. That's not the issue. The issue is the debt has been incurred and it's now being called in. So how will the servant respond when the master, the king, says, I want the debt repaid? What is the only thing he can do? Tell me, that's not a rhetorical question. What is the only thing he can do? I want to know if you're on my wavelength here. He cannot pay it. There is no way he can pay it. What's the only thing he can ask for? Mercy. You got it right. That's the only thing he can ask for. 
But what does he ask for? Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. But he can't pay back everything because it's impossible for him to pay back everything. You got the point? He doesn't know how big the debt is. He thinks he can repay it, given enough time. But given 200,000 years, he couldn't do it. Do you see the point? What he should have asked for was simply, have mercy upon me. I just throw myself, we've had the word humility mentioned already before, I throw myself on your mercy. I make no other claim, there's nothing I can do. He doesn't ask that. He says, have mercy on me, be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. He's not understood the nature of the debt he owes. This is very, very important. He doesn't understand the nature of the debt he owes. So consequently, he doesn't hear the master's reply. He doesn't hear what the king says. What does the king say? What he thinks the king says is, I'll give you time, work out a repayment structure, and we'll begin next Wednesday. That's what he hears the master say. But what does the master actually say? The master says, forget it. The debt is cancelled. You no longer have to pay it. You are set free from it. I will pay it myself. You don't have to pay it. It is cleared. You are free. Alright, that's what the master says, isn't it? He says, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Let him go. Before this, he was going to put him, his wife, his children, and everything he had up on the market stall for sale. To get, at least get something back, a little contribution to this massive debt. It wouldn't pay the debt, but it would make a little contribution to it. But he lets him go. But because the servant does not understand the size of the debt, he doesn't hear that. He hears, you've got time, go and work on a repayment program, and I'll see you next week. But that's not what the master said. Because, put yourself in this servant's shoes, okay? You owe this colossal, unpayable, huge, vast debt. And you go in and throw yourself on the mercy of the master and he says, it is cancelled, you are free. What will be your emotional response to that? Tell me. Relief. Relief. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Delight. Joy. Almost unbelief. You can't believe it. It's too good to be true, wouldn't it? You would go out on a great high, wouldn't you? Everyone you met, you'd tell them, I can't believe it. I've been set free. This is amazing, isn't it? That would be the response if he'd understood the size of the debt and if he'd understood what the king has said. But what does he actually do? He goes out and sees another servant who owes him, well, a small amount, but it's pretty paltry compared to what he owes. And his response is not, I've been freed, I've been, the debt's been cancelled. Don't worry about yours, I, I'm just free. That's not the response. He goes out and grabs this bloke by the throat and throws him up against the wall and says, pay me back what you owe, because he still thinks he's got to pay back the debt. So he wants to call in every debt. So his attitude towards the servant 
demonstrates without any shadow of a doubt he has not understood what has just happened to him. Doesn't it? Without any shadow, it doesn't matter what he says, his attitude shows categorically that he has no idea what has happened here. He's thinking of clearing his own debt with the king. So the king hears about this because the other servants are appalled by this. The king hears this and brings him in and says, you wicked man, I forgave you everything you owed me and you go out and make this poor man pay you some paltry amount? What are you on? You can forget it. The the debt is reimposed and what's more, you're in prison and you'll stay there. And Notice what he says. Until he should pay back all he owed, which is never. He will never be able to repay this debt. So he is in prison being tortured forever. So the way we treat others who have sinned against us, says Jesus, indicates more than words could ever say whether we have understood the forgiveness of God that he has extended to us in Christ for the sin that we have committed against him. That's the point of this parable, isn't it? That's the whole point of this parable. There are no other points. Whatever else might be true about forgiveness and giving and receiving it, Jesus says, Peter, don't you understand that the debt you owe God is completely, impossibly unpayable? There is no way you will ever be able to pay it, and yet you will receive from God total forgiveness. Does that change the way you see how other people offend against you? I hope it does. Don't you understand? It's not a matter of a little list with ticks against it, whether it's 7, 77, or 490, or any other argumentative figure. That's not the point. If you know the debt you owe God, and if you understand the forgiveness that you have received in Christ, then you will always forgive others. It won't be easy. There's implications to it. I'm not pretending that. But Jesus says you've got to get this point over. This is the motivating thing. If you don't get this, the rest is sheer effort, isn't it? It's sheer legalism. We're made to live in a perfect world, but it's broken and dysfunctional. Therefore, the need for forgiveness and reconciliation will exist right up to the time when Jesus comes again. Because relationships get destroyed and they need to be rebuilt. Is this impossible? Well, Jesus lived what he preached, didn't he? As they are banging the nails into his hands, he says to his father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Yes, they do. They know exactly what they're doing. They're killing him, because they want to kill him. But at a profounder level, Jesus says they have no idea what they're doing. So, Father, forgive them. And Stephen, the first master, will almost exactly duplicate not only the words but the motivation of his master as he is being stoned to death by those who could have been expected to have understood his stance. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
What do we owe God? We are in God's debt. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. It's completely unpayable. Nothing less will do. Pay it and you're dead. That's it. You can't pay it. Not and still live. And we're in need, urgent and desperate need of forgiveness. We were by nature objects of wrath with an impossible debt to pay. But God has made us alive in Christ. We are free. God, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, acts. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus a forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It sounds easy, but it's because God himself will pay the debt. The king can deliver his, pay, his servant from paying the debt simply because he will take the debt himself. He pays it. And God pays it on our behalf too. Isn't this wonderful news? Isn't this great news? We should inwardly, if not outwardly, walk around with a big grin, shouldn't we? I know life can be tough and hard and horrible, but there should be, as it were, a deep sense of relief and release and joy profoundly because I am a forgiven person. God is a forgiving God. He blots out our transgressions. He casts our sins behind his back. He puts them in the sea. He chooses to remember our sins no more. He keeps no record of wrongs. Therefore, Jesus says, you've been forgiven. Therefore, forgive. Do you see the way the parable changes the way you look at things? And forgiving others as a result of God forgiving me does a number of things. The first thing it is, is liberate me from the prison of an embittered spirit. This is a little book by a bishop, Festo Kivenjuri, from Uganda, called Revolutionary Love. And speaking of the time when Idi Amin was ripping the country to pieces, he writes this, One deep lesson many of us struggled with has been to forgive the unforgivable. Many have argued with me about the title of my little book, I Love Idi Amin. And I can only go back to that first Good Friday after our escape from Uganda. We were in England and the newspapers were reporting daily the increased persecution back home. The six young actors who were to have represented the early martyrs of Uganda in a play for the church's centennial celebration were found dead together in a field. And on, and on. With the pain we had already gone through, I felt something was strangling me spiritually. I grew increasingly bitter toward Amin and was, to the same degree, losing my liberty and my ministry. I slipped into the back of All Souls Church in London to listen to the meditations on the seven last words of Christ on the cross. The first word was read distinctly, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So said my Lord when the cruel nails were being driven into his hands. His amazing love pressed into my consciousness. To me, he was saying, you can't forgive, Amin? No, Lord. Suppose he had been one of those soldiers driving the nails into my hands. He could have been, you know. Yes, Lord, he could. Do you think I would have prayed, Father, forgive them, all except that Idi Amin? 
I shook my head. No, Master. Even he would have come within the embrace of your boundless love. I bowed, asking forgiveness. And although I frequently had to repent and pray again for forgiveness, I rose that day with a liberated heart and have been able to share Calvary love in freedom. Yes, because of his immeasurable grace to me, I do love Idi Amin, have forgiven him, and still am praying for him to escape the terrible spiritual prison he's in. The first thing that happens among the many when we choose to forgive others is that we are liberated from the prison of an embittered spirit. Here's the second. It will break the cycle of revenge and hatred and it will allow change to take place. The scene is a recent courtroom trial in South Africa. A frail black woman rises slowly to her feet. She is something over 70 years old. Facing across the room are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr. Vanderbroek, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. He had come to the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while he and his officers parted nearby. Several years later, Vanderbroek and his cohorts had returned to take away her husband as well. For many months she heard nothing of his whereabouts. Then, almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Vanderbroek came back to fetch the woman herself. How vividly she remembers that evening, going to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband, bound and beaten, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words she heard from his lips as the officers poured gasoline over his body and set him on fire were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbroek. A member of the South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, So, what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to my, the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses and then she continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. This is also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbroek, overwhelmed by what he's just heard, faints. As he does, those in the courtroom, family, friends, neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the bloodbath that everyone was expecting 
in South Africa as blacks took over from whites never materialised. Forgiveness can break the cycle of revenge and hatred and give the possibility of real change. And thirdly, it will demonstrate, if I forgive others, it will demonstrate more than any words could ever do that I have received and I have understood the forgiveness God has given to me. We're going to have communion now, so perhaps someone would like to go and get whoever needs to be got and brought back to you. I'm going to do it slightly differently, and I hope that's not going to uh, unnerve you at all. Sometimes it's good just to do something slightly differently, not for the sake of change only, but to provoke in us, as it were, the reaction we are looking for, which is appreciation of God. Earlier on in the service we were being encouraged to think of ourselves as being those who bless others. It's a very accurate assessment of our calling. In Genesis, as we were looking last year, I think it was, Genesis, the calling of Abraham was to be a blessing, to be blessed and to be a blessing. That remains our calling today. So we have the chance this morning not to be a blessing at this point in time to folk outside, but to be a blessing to each other in here. If we can't be a blessing to each other, there's not much hope in us being a blessing to anyone else outside, is there? So I'm going to encourage... Are they coming through? Is that, yeah. That's all right. No, that's, that, that, that's okay. Good. Okay, come on in. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to get into twos. Three's possible, but don't, if you can avoid it, twos. And please... I'd like it possible, and you know, you can do whatever you like, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, but it would be lovely if we could mix up those twos. If you're older, go with someone younger. If you're here with someone, go with someone else. All right? So would you like to go, if you need to move, and be with somebody else in twos, okay? I'll let you organise yourself like that. So, older with younger, not two younger people together, not two, but older with younger. If you're here with someone, go with someone else, okay? Be brave. Some of you will have to move. I'll let you do that now. I'll let you organize yourselves into twos, okay? Won't take long. You haven't got long. Everybody's nice here. Because our calling is to be a blessing to people out there, but we need first to be a blessing to each other. So we've got to get used to this sort of thing, haven't we? How can we ever be a blessing to other people if we can't actually have the desire to be a blessing one another. Is that okay? This is not just to make you feel uncomfortable. This is because we want to receive this. This is a turning point, not only in the service, if you like, but in life. Our actions from this moment on will depend on how much we have understood this, won't they? How we treat other people outside in the coming week will depend on how we have understood this, won't it? Communion is about being with the Lord, but we do it together. When Paul writes his bit in 1 Corinthians, he says about something mysterious about recognising the body of the Lord. What he means is we do it conscious of each other. And that's what I want us to do today. When we get to that point what of having the bread, what I want to, to happen is that one of each pair to come up here and take enough bread for the two of you and take it back and share it with each other 
And I'm going to suggest at that point you pray with one another. All right? You got this? Now, some of you are more fluent at praying than others, and some of you are feeling a little bit awkward at this point. Don't. What we're saying is, I want you, as we have this prayer, I want you to understand fully this to be a transforming moment for you. That will really be something that helps you change the way you deal with everybody in your life. The way we receive this, understand it, is how we will deal with other people. None of us wants to go out here and take anyone by the throat and say, pay me back what you owe. Do we? So you're going to take the bread, one of you is going to come up here, take enough bread, share it with you, and then between you, just pray, Lord, transform our hearts. You have forgiven us. Praise the Lord. I can give you some verses of scripture, if you want, to pray. And they were read at the beginning of the service. They come from Ephesians, chapter 3, and verse 16. So if you want a Bible, now's time to go and get one. Because you might like to have that open before you. If you need a, something to pray, that would be fine. If you feel more comfortable like that. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 3, verse 14 onwards. It's a lovely prayer. Someone said it's a model prayer. Well, let's use it then as a model prayer. I pray this for you. And you can just read it to one another. Okay? Then when we get to the part about the wine, the other one of the two comes up here and takes two cups back and you share it together and you give it to each other and ask God's blessing on you. And you could use, if you wanted, Ephesians 1, verses 3 onwards. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You could just say, you have been blessed if you want a little structure for your prayer. okay? But say whatever's on your heart. The key thing is, my friend, Jesus says, if we really understand the forgiveness of God, the debt we owe to him and his forgiveness, it will transform our relationships with each other and with the world at large. And that's the kind of thing. Only that will allow us to say to people, I, I forgive you, Father forgive them. Because people this week will hurt you, won't they? You'll be in situations where people will rile you, annoy you, be unkind to you. And the tendency is to lash out and avenge. It comes up very quickly in us. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. So I received from the Lord, writes Paul, what I've also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So our prayer for one another is that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Our prayer for one another is that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
and to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So just imagine your week as it stretches before you, school, your place of work, whether it's in the home or beyond the home. Cast your mind over the people that you will meet, perhaps the tricky ones as well as the others. Now receive the blessing of God that you may be a blessing to those people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.